As you're turning to Psalm 80, um, I want to take your mind back a few weeks ago to Psalm 72. Uh, We looked at that psalm, and if you remember, it was a psalm expressing David's prayer for his son Solomon as Solomon became king. If you remember, it was what we call a coronation psalm or a, or a royal psalm, praying for a king or speaking of the king. And it was really David's desire expressed to God in a poem and in music of what he wanted to see God accomplish through his son Solomon. It was really, to me, a beautiful expression of David's hope that Solomon would be the promised serpent crusher that's spoken of in Genesis 3. And it was a desire for the fulfillment of what God tasked Adam and Eve with of um, expanding the garden to the ends of the earth and bringing everything into dominion um, under their rule as the um, intended rulers that God had put in place. But as we look at Solomon's life and we consider how he lived and what he did, if you remember a comment I made quite a while ago, Solomon was not a good guy. Solomon is not one of the good guys in the Bible. He failed miserably. And if he was a president today, we would not be, as Christians, real happy with a guy who has that many wives, who is greedy, who oppresses people. We would not like Solomon. Solomon was not a good guy. And so what David prayed for, for God to do through his son Solomon, David found out, and the rest of the world found out, and we know today that Solomon was not the fulfillment of God's promise. He was not the serpent crusher. He actually advanced the agenda of the serpent. And in fact, instead of an eternal kingdom that David prayed for, Solomon's actions as a king led to the kingdom dividing. His son followed in his father's philosophical footprints and drove a wedge into the kingdom, and it divided into the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And our psalm for today, in Psalm 80, is a prayer of lament by a man named Asaph. And as we read Psalm 80, we are over 200 years past the divided kingdom, 200 years past Solomon's reign as king. And as we read this, either Assyria has conquered the northern ten tribes or is about to finish its conquering of the northern ten tribes. There's a little bit of disagreement as to that specific timing, but we do know that it was Assyria is on the verge, at least, of conquering the ten northern tribes and taking them into captivity. It doesn't say anything about Assyria in the text, but if you were to read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call a Septuagint, you would find that this is in the in the heading to the psalm. We're told that it is about Assyria. And Asaph laments what has happened to Israel and he calls out to God asking him to restore and save his people. Three times he's going to use that phrase, restore your people, save your people. 
And as he prays, as we work through this psalm, we'll see that Asaph remembers the past and he reflects on the present. And yet, as bad as things are in Asaph's world in relation to the nation of Israel, Asaph speaks of a hope-filled future. Asaph, as one person put it, probably could have stood on the borders of the northern ten tribes and seen the smoke coming up from the cities as they were devastated. And he laments what's happening, and he doesn't understand exactly what God is doing. But he feels the loss of Israel. He feels the loss of the ten northern tribes. And I think that Psalm 80, as I was reading it and studying it, it it occurred to me that Psalm 80 is really relevant to us today as people. Anyone who has suffered loss, Psalm 80 speaks into that. Anyone who has rebelled against God and is wanting to find a way back but doesn't see the path, Psalm 80 speaks to that. Anyone who simply longs for better days, Psalm 80 speaks to that. It's a psalm of lament in the surface of Psalm 80. There is so much in this psalm that ties back to stuff previous to it in in the Old Testament, and there is stuff that it links to afterwards in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Scott and I were talking this week about how Zechariah, one of his prophecies, is directly connected to Psalm 80. It's just It goes off in so many different directions. Uh, we're going to take one particular path out of Psalm 80. Um, and I hope it's helpful, but uh, uh, I hope that you will go back and study Psalm 80 on your own just to see how it connects into the rest of the Bible. Let's read Psalm 80 together. To the choir master, according to lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention or mocking for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations, and you planted it. You were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. He sent out, it sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the field, feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They burned it with fire. They have cut it down. 
May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. And we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As I mentioned a moment ago, the ten northern tribes of Israel have been ravaged by Assyria. Assyria was a horrible country. And I think I've told you before how they would lay siege to a city and just starve the inhabitants out. If, if they, when they came to you as a city and they encamped around your walls, they would demand full surrender. If you surrendered to them, they would take most of your women. They would in some way either eliminate a certain portion of the young men or force them into slavery in some way. It wasn't going to be a pretty picture if you surrendered. But if you didn't surrender, they would starve you out. They would eventually breach your walls. They would rape and pillage all the women, most of the children, and they would kill all of the young men. They were known for skinning people alive, the men in particular. They'd skin them alive and hang their skins on the city walls, outside of the city walls, as a proclamation of what happens if you don't surrender to Assyria. They would cut off the heads of men in the city. Any of the men who could rebel or resist, they'd cut off their heads and they would stack them in a nice pile outside the city gates as a proclamation of this is what happens if you don't surrender. They were a horrible people and they were a bloodthirsty people and they have come to the northern ten tribes. For a very long time, God had spoken through the prophets warning his people that if they did not turn from their sin and obey them, obey him, he would judge them. And those warnings went unheeded and Israel pursued false gods and finally God in his wrath brought the promised judgment. His face no longer shined on the people. His wrath has brought him to a point of rebuking the people of God. And the news of God's judgment has reached Asaph's heart, has reached Asaph, and his heart is broken. If you really read this psalm and you try to feel the emotion of Asaph in his words, it's heartbreaking. What he feels and what he sees as God's people are being destroyed having known all the promises of God, being the one who led Israel in worship as far as singing. And now it's just torched. It's gone. It's hard for me to read this without wanting to cry. And as I read what Asaph describes of the effects of God's judgment upon his people, it almost seems he feels that God has gone too far. There's statements in here and the way he phrases things. It's just like, God, this is too much. 
Yes, they've been wicked, and yes, they deserve judgment, but it's just too much. You've gone too far. In verse 4, he acknowledges God's anger with his people, and specifically their prayers. But he says, how long, how long will you be angry? How long till this ends? In 79, Psalm 79, if we, we don't have time to do this, but if we were going through a series of the Psalms as a whole, you would see Psalm 79 just dovetails into Psalm 80. And in Psalm 79, he asks the same question, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like a fire? He's basically saying, it's time to back off. You've, you've, I get your anger. I get we sin. It's time to back off. This is too much. You're over the top on this one. In verses 5 and 6, Asaph seems to argue that the judgment has accomplished its intended result. And God has gotten what he wanted. This people seem broken. Their grief is constant. And they become an object of mockery among the Gentile nations. He says in verse 5, You've fed them with the bread of tears and have given them tears to drink in full measure. These people are completely crushed and broken. And now this nation, these people who were to be a beacon of hope to the world, to be the people who pointed others to God, he speaks of them as objects of mockery. And, uh, and the enemies laugh among themselves. And it's just this sense of God, do, do you realize what you've done? And, and it's, that question in one sense is disrespectful, but in another sense, he's just expressing how he feels. Do you realize how far you've gone with this? Do you realize where Israel is now in the world? And there has to be a sense with Asaph of have the promises been forgotten? All the things that God promised that Israel would be and Israel would do seem to be lost and forgotten. And out of this broken heart, Asaph appeals to God to remember his relationship with his people. He opens here, give ear O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. He appeals to God on the basis of, being, of him being their shepherd. I did not know this until uh, studying Psalm 80, but there's only two places in the Psalms where God is referred to as a shepherd. Psalm 23, which you're very familiar with, and Psalm 80. There's no other place. There's, it speaks of God's people being a flock, but reference to God being a shepherd, this is one of the two places that it comes up. And he is appealing back to God to remember that he is the one who leads his people to still waters. He brings them and feeds them in green pastures, and he protects them when they're threatened. And yet this shepherd of Israel, God, you've called yourself the shepherd of Israel, and yet your sheep are being killed by the wolves and it seems hopeless 
The writer of Psalm 95 refers to Israel as the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is the flock that God has said he has loved, and yet now it seems as though the sheep have been abandoned by their shepherd. He's left them. He's walked away from them. Asaph uses another relational illustration in verses 8 to 18 as he speaks with the imagery of a grapevine. He reminds God of his work of rescuing Israel from Egypt. And he reminds God of all that he went through to establish them in the promised land. He speaks of God like a gardener, one who prepared the soil of Canaan and personally planted a rootstock in the soil. I I read this this description in verse 8. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. And anytime you see garden imagery in the scripture, the, the writers intend for your mind to go back to the Garden of Eden. That God in Eden, we're told, planted a garden. Eden is not the garden. A lot of people think Eden is the garden. But Eden was an area, and in that area, God, it says, planted a garden. He was a gardener. And he put trees in there, and he and he developed it and this imagery here in verses 8 to 18 is really a very similar image he's the asaph is appealing back to that imagery of a garden where god chose canaan and he brought his people in but before he planted he didn't just stick it in the middle of a bunch of weeds or thorns and thistles he actually cleared the land when you hear God say to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land to drive out all the inhabitants, I believe that that is connected to this idea of God preparing the land, clearing out the weeds, so to speak, getting the creeping Charlie out so that this vine, this rootstock, can be planted into the center of this garden that's been built and it will flourish it'll have no competition it'll flourish in that place that God has established for it and that the imagery there of you you planted good stock you took a root stock you planted good stock you planted it takes us back to the garden of eden that God planted a garden and the anticipation was from what Asaph is explaining here is that when God established his people in Canaan it was going to be the second garden it was going to be the second place where God met with his people and and people could talk and be with their God and God tabernacled in Canaan with his people and his people rebelled against him And so Asaph speaks of the walls of this garden being broken down. Although the vines, uh, the roots of the vine went deep, and although the vine flourished under God's care, and although the branches spread out and covered the land from the Mediterranean Sea to the river Euphrates, although this vine brought forth fruit, 
It became unhealthy and it began to wither and it began to to die. And God broke down the walls and exposed them. And as he said, the boar from the forest ravages it. They're without protection anymore. God has essentially in Asaph's eyes abandoned his people. At one time, like a tree planted by the rivers of water, this vine brought forth abundant fruit, but now it's broken, it's trampled, it's ravaged, and it's burned. So when I read Psalm 80, and you see the potential of what was intended to be, and you see the reality of what has happened, it just grieves my heart. And it grieves my heart in part because it's not it's not that old of an event. We we think of the Old Testament as so far back, but the reality is that the Old Testament speaks of people and their condition, and that those people and that condition continues to today because of the sin. And it breaks my heart when people who confess Christ in their lives and, and seem to have a heart to serve God one day write an email saying, I honestly don't believe any of this. And however you want to term it, that I've walked away from the faith or I was never saved in the first place really doesn't matter because I don't believe any of this anymore. It's heartbreaking when that happens. But it happens very often. And and so my heart ties with Psalm 80 because what Psalm 80 describes, what Asaph describes, is still happening today with those who call themselves God's people. But what I love about Psalm 80 is that in the midst of all of Asaph's grief and questions, he still expresses hope in the person and work of God. He has not given up. He doesn't look at God and say, there's no reason to believe in you. There's no reason to serve you. There's no reason to go forward in what I would call a religious following of Jesus Asaph actually expresses hope in the person and work of God in verse 1 he says give ear O shepherd of Israel you who lead Joseph like a flock you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth he speaks there in verse 1 of God's sovereignty, referring to him as the one who is enthroned between or, or with the cherubim. And if you are not familiar with the imagery, he's speaking of the Ark of the Covenant. It sat in the Holy of Holies, and that was considered God's throne on earth. And the cherubim, their wings came up. They were angelic beings. <clears throat> and as they knelt or and that's most of the time the picturing that you get is they're kneeling on the top of the ark of the covenant their wings come up and spread over the ark of the covenant and the people of israel believed 
that God sat on the Ark of the Covenant. That was his dwelling place. And that's what Asaph is expressing here. The one who is enthroned upon the cherubim. And what, what he is saying is, I know that you still are in control. I know that you still reign. I know that you are not powerless to save your people. You are still enthroned. You are still sovereign. Asaph has not lost faith in the fact that God is on his throne and that God is in control. And that fact, that belief that God is in control and that God is doing his good will is what drives Asaph to cry out to God at all. At the very beginning here, this is what I want you to get, is at the very beginning in verse 1 of this psalm, in all of his sorrow, in all of his heartbreak, in all of the loss that has occurred, in all of the, I don't understand what you're doing, God, Asaph affirms that God is in control. He sits enthroned. He also expresses hope in the promises of God. I hear this hope in verses 15 and 17. Picking up in verse 14, he says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that you planted, that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. He speaks in these verses about a son, a man of God's right hand, and a son who God has made strong for himself. And I would suggest that these statements look back to at least two specific promises. Asaph has grounded himself and his pleas are based upon the idea that God is enthroned, that God is in control. And Asaph's prayer and what he believes God can do are based upon the fact that God keeps his promises and at least two of them. The first promise that I think informs Asaph's view and causes him to cry out to God is God's promise to Eve. God promised Eve that she would bear a son. As I've said many times, when Eve has her first son, or her first child, we're told that she named him what she named him and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Eve believed in that child when he was born, that he was the promised one. He was the son that she would have that would crush the serpent's head. He was the one who was promised the offspring of Eve who would bring reconciliation between God and man. That was Eve's hope. And at this point, that person has not come. Cain made it obvious that he was not that person. And as time went on, that person had not shown up. And Asaph cries out to God and really kind of claims the promise 
that God was going to give one, a man, a son, who would have power to crush the serpent's head. And now Asaph understands that reconciliation with God is Israel's only help. And he, he cries out to God for that son, that man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And the second promise is a promise God made to David found in 2 Samuel 7. And I think this is the other side or the other promise that Asaph believed. God said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Is there any question why David in Psalm 72 spoke to God about his son becoming the king and having an eternal kingdom that would span the entire world. David believed that promise and when you, re- when you hear the words of God's promise to David, you hear that promise fleshed out in David's prayer in Psalm 72. But again, that was Solomon and he wasn't the guy. And Asaph is still looking at that promise and holding on to that promise. And Asaph believes that God would keep his promises and in hope ask God to fulfill what he had promised. Send the serpent crusher. Give us the serpent crusher. Give us the one who will rule forever, whose kingdom will be forever, whose kingdom will be expansive across the face of the earth so that all men will worship you. And with that hope in his heart, of that Son of Man, that Son of God's right hand, three times Asaph calls out to God to do two specific things for his people. One of the the keys to understanding Psalms, the Psalms, is to look for repetitions in their poetry. If you're studying one of the Psalms and you're reading it, the way that you should start reading it is looking for words that might repeat themselves or phrases that might repeat themselves. And in in Psalm 80, it's really easy to find some of them. In verse 3, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. He ups the ante in verse 7, Restore us, O God of hosts. That refers to God in his military power over his armies. O God of hosts, restore us. Let your face shine that we may be saved. In verse 19, he ends with, Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. He takes it even further in that third statement to be God's covenant name. Restore us, Yahweh, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Asaph asked God to restore his people. 
And that word restore literally means to turn your people back to you. Asaph understood something very profound. That repentance of sin, which brings restoration of one's relationship with God, requires an act of God in the individual's life. Asaph did not write to the people of God and simply say, Restore yourself to God. Turn back to God. Repent of your sin. Asaph prays to God as the all-powerful God, as the God of covenant to turn His people's hearts back to Him and thus bring reconciliation and, and restoration. Repentance of sin requires an act of God in the individual's life. That should drive us as people, especially in relation to those who sin or walk away from God, to first begin with praying that God would restore them, that God would turn them back. So often Christians have a tendency to go to other Christians when they see a sin and confront that sin and expect the person to go, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm doing something bad. I'm going to stop doing it. As though our words have power to change individuals. I'm not saying that we should not confront people at times for serious sin. What I'm saying is that all of our efforts have to be rooted in the power of God to change people's hearts. And thus we pray. We begin with prayer. Asking God to change the person's heart. Affirming that God is in control. And the second thing that Asaph does here is he asks God to shine his face upon his people. Again, this is a word that's repeated even outside of those statements. In verse 1, You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine. Shine forth. I love that picture. This idea of God sitting on the throne in the tabernacle, His presence there, and God shining out from the tabernacle. He speaks of God's face again in verse 16, asking that the enemies of God would perish at the rebuke of His face. I'll come back to that in a moment. But there's this idea of God's face and God shining His face upon His people. And this request of Asaph goes all the way back to number 6. And God spoke to Moses and told Moses to tell Aaron that he was to bless God's people by saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Asaph is appealing to the Aaronic blessing that the priests were to say over God's people. And Asaph is saying, restore us, O God. Turn us back to you 
and let your face shine that we may be saved. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Asaph wants to see God's people come back to God. I would ask you this morning, like I asked you with Psalm 72, looking at David's prayer for Solomon, and now looking at the prayer of Asaph and really many other Old Covenant saints. I would ask you, was the prayer of Asaph ever answered? Was the prayer of Asaph ever answered? We pray for a lot of things. I would say that to remind you this morning that the act of prayer is at its heart a recognition of God's power to do what we can't do. Which is usually why prayer is the last thing we do. Because prayer is an admission, I can't do this. I can't make this happen. I can't change the circumstances. I can't change the person. And so God, I come to you because I believe that you can. Now we don't always express that, but that is at the heart of prayer. It's what Asaph is praying. It's It's what's motivating him. God, I can't beat Assyria. I can't rescue the ten tribes. I can't turn their hearts back to You. But You can. You do sit on Your throne. You are powerful. And so I confess that I can't, but You can. Will You? But we do that and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. And it seems to fall on deaf ears, doesn't it? The person doesn't change. Your struggle with sin doesn't seem to change. The relationship that is broken doesn't seem to change. The situation that you're in sometimes seems to grow worse, which is what happened within a relatively short period of time in relation to world history. Not only were the ten tribes in captivity, but the other two were as well. The, The kingdom of Judah went into captivity. It got worse. So was Asaph's prayer ever answered? If we judge Asaph's prayer being answered by how we judge our own prayers being answered when we say, I prayed and I prayed and God didn't do anything. And I don't understand why He didn't do anything. If we use that kind of template and put it on Asaph and we ask the question, was Asaph's prayer ever answered? The answer seems to be no. But like David's prayer, 
that took a long time to be answered, God did answer Asaph's prayer. Asaph's desire was for God to once again show favor to the nation of Israel and cause it to flourish. But God had something in mind that was much bigger and much better than what Asaph prayed for. And I think that's a key thing for us to grasp as we walk away from Psalm 80 is that when we pray and it seems that God doesn't answer our prayers, we have to trust the enthroned God and believe that He has something bigger and something better somewhere down the road when our prayers don't seem to be answered in the moment. How did God answer Asaph's prayers? in answer to the prayer of Asaph and in answer to many other prayers of other old covenant saints, God sent the desired Son of Man. Do you catch that in this passage? Send the one that you promised, God. Don't forget the one that you promised. God sent that desired Son of Man. He sent that Son who He had made strong. And you know who that was. God answered Asaph's prayer hundreds of years later in the person of Jesus. In His time, in His perfect time, the One who is in control answered Asaph's prayer in what the New Testament refers to as the fullness of time. When the time that God had established to do His good work in a bigger and better way than Asaph could ever have imagined, God was not late. God did not forget. On that appointed time, on that appointed day, God answered Asaph's prayer. In the person of Jesus, the Son of God's right hand, where does Jesus sit today? at the right hand of God. The Son of God sits at the right hand of God. God did not just show favor to the Jews, but God showed the whole world favor and made His face shine upon the whole world. That's what this Word, this, this phrase means when you ask to God, for God to make His face to shine upon you, you are asking God to show you favor, to notice you, to hear you, to answer you, to show you favor. God showed the whole world favor by revealing Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, as I was studying this, I wish I'd have thought of this on my own, but I'm not that smart. But one of the persons I was reading pointed out that Moses on the mountain asked God to show him his glory. And God's answer was, not going to do that. 
That's not going to happen today. And the reason is, and this tells us what Moses was asking when he asked God to show him his glory. God says, no one can look upon my face and live. No person can look on my face and live. What Moses was asking for on the mountain was, God, show me your face. I want to see what you look like. And God says, you can't handle that, dude. You'll die. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand, and I'm going to walk past you, and then you'll get to see the back of me. That's the most that you can see. And that was an amazing moment for Moses, but he didn't get what he wanted. He didn't get to see God's face. But I want you to understand something that I had never connected. When Jesus was born, and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds were in that space, and everybody fights about what is that space. The song that is very popular tells us that Mary looked upon the face of God. Do you get how significant that is? No one looks on God's face and lives. I mean, we say Jesus is God. That's great. So let's apply that. As Mary cradled her, him in her arms and she looked down on her, his face as Joseph looked down on his face, as the shepherds sat there and looked at his face, they were seeing for the first time the very face of God. Because Jesus did not just have God with him. Jesus is God. And when God sent His Son into the world to be born of a woman, born under the curse, in the fullness of time, humanity had the first opportunity to look on the face of God. God made His face to shine upon human beings. What a wonderful gift to humanity when Jesus walked this earth and all who encountered him every day saw the face of God and didn't die. They were in the presence of the most holy God. They were in the presence of the most righteous person who has ever existed before humanity existed. Jesus existed. And every day as they interacted with Him, every day as those disciples, those slow-minded disciples interacted with Him, they looked on the face of God. And it's no wonder to me that John in his Gospel marvels at that when he writes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John got it. John knew that they had looked upon the face of God and they had lived. Asaph's prayer was answered, not in the way that he thought he wanted, 
but in something much bigger and something much better when he said, when he asked, make your face to shine upon us. Asaph's prayer was also answered as Jesus hung on the cross. In verse 16, Asaph asked God, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. In response to what the Assyrians have done to the vine that God planted, Asaph asks for retribution on their sin and says, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. That face that could shine and show favor also is a face that rebukes and destroys. And when Jesus hung on that cross, God turned his face on one condemned by the law because of sin. As Jesus was stretched out and humiliated, God did not turn his face on Jesus in favor. Our sins were laid on Jesus and God turned his face on Jesus in his wrath. And he, being rebuked is not what we think of, you know, somebody telling you you're wrong. It's a rebuking that refers to destruction. God shined his face in favor upon humanity when he looked in rebuke at Jesus hanging there in his sin. Because that wrath of God poured out on Jesus, that judgment of God that was affected on Jesus was God's shining of his face on us because that brought us forgiveness of sin. That brought us justification to stand righteous before God. Hanging there, bearing the guilt of others, Jesus perished under the judgment of God so that all who place their trust in him for forgiveness of sin will forever only know the favor of God. Was Asaph's prayer answered in much bigger and much better ways than he could ever think of? And in light of this today, I would encourage you to consider and believe, not just to make a note, a mental note of a fact that now you know, but to believe that if you are God's child through faith in Jesus, your good Father's face shines upon you. Always. If we truly believe in the doctrine of justification, if we truly believe that we are declared innocent of our sin before God, if we truly believe in the doctrine of imputation, that Christ's obedience, that Christ's righteousness is credited to me and God the Father sees me in the righteousness of Christ, which is mainstream orthodox doctrine, if we truly believe those things to be true, then it has to follow that God's face always shines upon us in favor. 
And if that's true, then we should be people that believe that whatever is happening in our life, God's favor is upon us. When we go through loss, when we go through broken relationships, when our hearts are broken and we are pained, We need to remember that God answered the prayer of Asaph in a way that was unthinkable to Asaph. And that those who were not a people are now God's people. And that those who stood condemned now stand righteous before him. And God's favor rests upon his people. And if what Asaph prayed for came to fruition in Jesus, and we believe that, then it should encourage us to pray like Asaph, believing that God is on his throne. It should encourage us to pray like Jesus, who trusted his Father's goodwill and articulated to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Those words, the older I get and the more I think about those words, they're just stunning. That the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, prays to his father and says, I want something different. I don't want this. I I honestly have a hard time wrapping my head around that. When I was younger, I used to say, Jesus couldn't have been praying for escape from the cross because he knew about it and he, he was part of that whole process and he wouldn't be praying now for something different than that. As I've gotten older and you just let the, the passage speak and hear it in its context, Jesus is saying, Father, I don't like this. I don't want this. If it's at all possible, remove this cup from me. And he prays that multiple times. And he's in such agony and anguish over what lies before him that he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. His blood pressure didn't just go up a little bit. He wasn't just a little bit unhappy. He was being ripped apart because of what was coming. And he says, God, I don't want this. But he lets God be enthroned, the Father be enthroned. He trusts in God's good favor upon him. First Peter tells us he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And he went forward in the Father's will. So when Jesus prays, not my will but yours be done, that's a stunning moment. 
And it's very different than I think, at least how I sometimes pray, and maybe you do too. That we're trying to use the promises of God to trap Him or twist Him around our little finger and make Him do what we want Him to do. Instead of, God, this is my heart. This is my desire. This is who You are. And I want this, but I'll trust You. That's coming to a point when we pray in our grief and our loss that God will answer in His perfect time and His perfect way. And that answer may be when we no longer walk this earth. We sometimes pray for a long time and nothing changes and our good desires have not been realized. What should we do? I think we hold on to the promises of God, not as leverage to get God to do what we want Him to do, but rather to strengthen our faith that He keeps His promises even when we can't see it. And in those moments when it seems fruitless to pray, ask God to increase your faith. Ask Him to help you believe that He is still sovereign and in control. And just like Asaph, and just like Jesus, believe that God is at work doing something in His time that is bigger and better than what you want. If the answer to your prayer doesn't come, it's either God saying no, but you don't know that, or it's God saying, wait. And since we don't know that He's saying no, we should continue to pray assuming that He is saying, wait. And we may not see the answer in our time, and we may not see the bigger and better thing that He has. But if we believe that He's sovereign, and if we believe that He's good, and if we believe that He is shining His face upon us, we should continue to pray and trust Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would teach us from the words of Asaph, which are Your words. You want us to hear this. It's Your Word. Help us to learn from the life of Jesus that as we pray to You, we come saying, this is what I want, but I don't know for sure what You want, so Your will be done. Father, help us to trust that You are sovereign, that You are enthroned. Help us to trust that Your plan A is still in place even when plan A seems like a mess to us. Help us to trust You. 
Help us to believe you. Help us to rest in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Help us to pray, believing and yielding to your goodwill. Father, I thank you that you have made your face to shine upon us. Father, I pray that you would make deep tracks in our minds in regard to that statement. So that it comes back to our memory often. Because there is so much brokenness around us and we are such broken people. Remind us that you have made your face to shine upon us and we live and move under your favor. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what Asaph expresses here. Help us to believe. In your son's name, amen.